It seems we go not a week now, doesn't it, without the news of uh, the death of someone famous. We've had Olivia Newton-John in this past week, Judith Durham uh, not too long before that, and of course uh, the cricketing world in uh, tragedy after tragedy with Andrew Simons, and not shortly before that Shane Warne, and shortly before that Rod Marsh. The NRL world dealing with the famous death of uh, someone whose name I can't remember, but if I followed our NRL, I would. When someone famous dies, there's this sort of strange shock that happens, isn't it? We never expect that anyone who's achieved great things would be met with death. I can remember when Michael Jackson died. Uh, or Princess Diana, for those of you who are old enough to remember that died. It's so shocking because they're so famous. It's like somehow they should have escaped this horrible thing. And I think that the way that we respond when people who are kind of uh, so famous, they seem to transcend this life, is this little window into how for many of us, we don't like to think about death. We don't like to talk about it, we shudder at the thought of it, and unless it comes and smacks us in the face, we just push it to the back of our minds, ignoring it and assuming that everything's going to be fine and everything's just going to carry on as normal for the best part of forever. But of course, as uncomfortable it is to think about, as uncomfortable as it is to say, death is coming for you. No matter your age, your health, or your wealth, any day could be your last. Any week, any year, any decade. As I was feeling particularly morbid as I was preparing this sermon, I figured, well, I'm turn, about to turn 38. Even if I successfully avoid all danger and ill health, I guess I've got 40 to 50 years left before old age is just going to get me. It's sort of uncomfortable to think about it when you start counting down the days. But at any moment we could meet this horrible adversary that is death. And so what do we do about it? What do we do with this thing that is death? Well, the story of Jesus and Lazarus is a story that helps us face reality with hope. Jesus, of course, gets word, we read at the start of chapter 11 of John's Gospel, that his friend Lazarus is sick and, of course, we assume he gets this word because his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they've, they've reached out to him because they know Jesus can help. They've probably seen Jesus heal sick people before. But the decision to go and help Lazarus is a decision that's not without danger. We see that uh, as Jesus decides to go and see Lazarus, the disciples kind of caution him. Verse 8. Rabbi, they say, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you're going to go back like we know Lazarus is sick. 
But it's dangerous stuff to go back to that part of the world. And of course, as this conversation unfolds where Jesus tells them that Lazarus is asleep, by which he means that he's already died, then the disciples start to think this is in fact not only dangerous, but futile. As, uh, he, as uh, Jesus tells them in verse 11 that Lazarus is asleep, by which he means dead, he clarifies a few verses later. Now Thomas says, well, let's go and die with him, verse 16. This is a futile mission that's likely to end in all our deaths. Why, why add to it? But if this is what our boss wants to do, we're going to go with it anyway. But I want to note that in that back and forth that we have in these opening verses, something odd that Jesus says. Have a look at verse 15. Jesus says in verse 14 that Lazarus is dead, and then he says, verse 15, For your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, let us go, but let us go to him. Jesus says to the disciples, I'm glad that Lazarus has died. That's a jarring statement, isn't it? That's a jarring thing for Jesus to say. I am glad for your sake that I haven't gone and that, the, that, that Lazarus has died. And it's an important that we note this because it teaches us something, I think, that's important. That for Jesus... And I'll quote to you from one of the scholars who writes on John's Gospel, Bruce Milne. For Jesus, the pain and anguish of the family are still of less worth than the nourishing of the faith of both the family and the attendant disciples. Once again, the cruciality of faith is stressed. You see, for Jesus, what matters most for all of us is knowing who he is and trusting who he is. That matters more than anything else. And Jesus is glad that in the death of Lazarus, there's going to be an occasion for Lazarus, when he raises him from the dead, but for Mary and Martha and for the disciples to have a greater understanding of who Jesus is and a greater trust in his power over death. Nonetheless, at this point, the disciples have no idea what's going on and they think they're on a death mission. And so Jesus heads down to Bethany. And by this time, Lazarus is very much dead. We read that Jesus waited a couple of days before heading to Bethany and then it seems that it's taken him a couple more days to travel there. And so on arrival, we read in verse 17, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Four days. Lazarus is well and truly dead. His soul has left his body, according to the beliefs at the time, decomposition has begun to set in. And, you know, I once listened to a sermon on this passage where the preacher told us that in the first century, we decomposed quicker than we do today because we eat so many chickens full of steroids that we kind of have, have um, our own 
ability to stay preserved for longer because of our food. I don't remember anything else he taught me about Jesus that day, and now maybe you won't either. But Lazarus is well dead. There's no coming back from this. And Mary and Martha are in the midst of full-blown mourning. We read in verse 19 that uh, they've been joined by many Jews to come and mourn with them and comfort them at the loss of their brother. And as Jesus arrives, Martha comes out to him and says, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It feels like a rebuke, doesn't it? What took you so long? And it sounds sort of like it's followed up with a little bit of faith, but I know now, verse 22, that even now God will give you whatever you ask. But as the conversation progresses, and as we see, if you have a look at verse 39 with Martha's response when Jesus gets to pushing the tomb uh, open, I, I think we can say that whatever Mary means by, I know now you can do whatever God asks, she is not conceiving of one of those things being actually bringing Lazarus back from the dead. I think probably she means, well, you didn't make it in time for Lazarus, but you're here now and maybe somehow you can make it okay for us. You can help us in our, our grief. You can uh, provide for our needs now we've lost the patriarch of our family. Well, Jesus gives a word of comfort to Martha. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know, he will rise at the resurrection of the last day, verse 24. This is the hope of much of first century Jerusalem, that there will be a final day of judgment where the dead will be resurrected. The Sadducees, who we read about in the gospel sometimes, they were one group that didn't believe that, but mostly everyone else, the Pharisees, most of the people that Jesus uh, hung out with, this was a common belief that there will be a resurrection on the last day. A very bodily hope. And Jesus says, this hope they have, it's a real hope, it's a true hope, and it's a hope that's fulfilled in him. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This statement by Jesus here is sort of like the culminating point of a number of things that we've seen in the gospel up to this point. Jesus has been revealed time and time again in John's Gospel as the one who brings life. He gives spiritual life to those who believe. We read about that in chapter 3. He gives thirst-quenching life, which he offers to the woman in the world in chapter 4. And uh, in subsequent chapters, we read of renewed life to a dying boy, renewed life to a paralytic, renewed life to a blind man who can now see in chapter 9. In chapter 10, the promise of life to the full for his sheep who trust in him. Jesus brings life. He is the resurrection and the life. He brings eternal life, death-beating life, life that begins now when we look to him, when we trust in him when we put our faith in him. 
Resurrection life, life which triumphs over death, is not something that is to come. It's something that is present in Jesus in the here and now and is present for us in the here and now as we look to Jesus and trust that he is the one who will defeat death. Does Martha believe? That's his, Jesus' question. She says, verse 27, yes. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. She doesn't get it fully. We can see that, as I've foreshadowed before. You look at verse 39, she's got no idea that Jesus can raise the dead. But what she does understand is that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is uh, one who brings life. She hasn't got it all sorted out, but she believes. And I want to say that for us, Martha is an example of how sometimes when it comes to trusting Jesus, it doesn't require <coughs> excuse me, all the dots to be lined up. It doesn't require perfect and correct theology before we trust. These sorts of things, better understandings, fuller comprehensions of, of what it means for the God of the universe to send his son into the world in the form of a man in Jesus Christ to die on a cross, to take away our sins, it takes time to figure out the, the logical conclusions of that, a lifetime in fact. But faith begins simply by taking Jesus at his word and trusting him and knowing that in him is life, a life that conquers death, however that works. Knowing this, trusting this, is truly transformative. I read to you at the start of the service today those wonderful words from 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life. When we face death, either our own death or the death of someone we love, it can cause us to wonder, can't it? About meaning, about purpose, about whether this life is all there is. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I have beaten death. Even if you don't fully comprehend all that this involves, just trust me. I've got this, I've got you. And we see more of Jesus' care for us as the story unfolds. For Martha goes and gets Mary, we read in verses 28 through 32, uh, and uh, as Mary comes out, she's followed by a bunch of mourners. And then we get this wonderful moment of humanity from Jesus. I'll just read from verse 32. 
When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus weeps. John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the Bible. And it's a profound yet short verse. Because in this moment we see Jesus entering into their grief, moved by their tears. It's remarkable when you think Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's already foreshadowed it to the disciples, saying, I'm glad that Lazarus is dead so that you can have this faith-building experience. And yet, as he, as he stands there before his friends, as they weep and mourn, Jesus weeps and mourns with them. Jesus loves his friends and is moved by their tears. He weeps with them and he weeps with us too. We don't serve a distant God. We serve a God who hates our pain, who weeps at our pain and who wants it gone. And that's what we see happen next. Because in verse 38, we read, Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. Now, the NIV has kind of um, tried to tone down what happens there. Because the word actually should say, Jesus angrily comes to the tomb. Jesus is mad. He goes from weeping with his friends to coming to the tomb to confronting death and he's angry. He's angry. Why? Let me tell you, lots of people write lots of things about why Jesus was angry. But I think B.B. Warfield sums it up best. Let me read to you what he says. The spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. In Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he had come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but his soul is held by rage as he advances to the tomb and in John Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. Like the farmer in his parable, Jesus can pronounce the verdict, an enemy did this. That enemy he has come to slay. Death sucks. It's horrible. And it's the result of sin. And it causes pain and grief and loss. And Jesus loves us and he hates that we have to put up with it. 
He hates what it does to us. He hates that Satan tries to lure us there. And he weeps with us. And he's angry at this great enemy which he has come to vanquish on the cross. Jesus goes to the tomb and performs a miracle to show the people, to show us what's coming. That he has power over death. And that this thing that causes us so much pain and hurt, he has come to deal with it. As Jesus wept, many assumed he was powerless to save Lazarus. We read that in verse 37. And yet, he is not. Take away the stone, he says in verse 39. And there, of course, we see Martha. Wait, this is going to stink. But they obey Jesus. They roll the stone away. And Jesus prays that simple prayer in verses 41 and 42, mostly for the benefit of those around him. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus doesn't need our faith to perform this miracle. People there are sceptical. He wills and acts as the sovereign Lord to bring life out of death. He calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, come out, verse 43. And out comes Lazarus. What a remarkable thing. I wonder how you'd respond if you were there. If you'd been mourning the death of your friend, your brother, and then you saw Jesus turn up, open the tomb, say a prayer, and bring him out of the tomb alive again. I hear many people say, if I saw Jesus raise someone from the dead, I'd believe. If God made himself clear and plain to me, I'd believe. And that is how many respond, isn't it? Verse 45. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But others go and tell the Jewish leaders what had happened. I don't think necessarily because they wanted to dob Jesus in, maybe, but it could have also been because these were their religious leaders and they thought, whoa, this is crazy, someone just came back to life, I better go and check out with the, with the kind of people who know stuff what's going on. But what happens when they go? Jesus has raised a man from the dead. This is like the culminating miracle of all these other miracles that he's done. And the, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the gathering of the Jewish leaders, they have a meeting. And one of them named Caiaphas, verse 49, who was the high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all, you do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So, that from, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. We've got to stop this guy raising people from the dead. It's bad news. Like, what's wrong with these people? 
We need to kill this guy in order to save the children of God. And of course, we see in Caiaphas' prophecy this sort of horrific yet beautiful irony that he's so right, but so wrong. One man does need to die to save the people, but not like they think, according to God's good plan. These people, these leaders, so stuck in their mindset that despite the evidence, despite the testimony, despite the Old Testament scriptures, they just will not believe that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to bring victory over death, who is the resurrection and the life. They've seen miracle after miracle and they do not believe. And they're not alone. This is not the only story in the Bible of a faithless people failing to believe in the goodness of God when it's right in front of them. We keep hearing about our kids, how they're working their way uh, through the Old Testament story. And I wonder uh, what you think about when you read Exodus. I often think, wouldn't it have been cool to be there? Imagine being in the Exodus. Like, apart from the fact that you were in slavery and people were whipping you to make bricks, like, apart from that bit, how cool would it have been to see God work powerfully to rescue you, to see God split the the Red Sea, to see God have food fall out of the sky, have water come out of rocks. Gosh, imagine how full of faith you'd be if you'd been there. Of course, those people saw those things. Then Moses takes a little bit too long up a mountain and they couldn't wait to take their rings off to lend some gold to Aaron so he could make a man-made idol for them to worship. There's always enough evidence to believe. The problem is not the evidence. It's your heart. Because Jesus has come to give a gift of life, resurrection life. And it's available to you And there's plenty of evidence that death is not the end of this horrible story, which is human life. But just the beginning of an eternal life in glory with Jesus. So let me implore you, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't ignore Jesus. Instead, believe. Even it's the kind of belief that that Martha had that was just bitsy and and, and not fully worked out, that's okay. Just take the step of faith. Because no matter who you are, the truth is that one day death will come. And that will mean you will meet Jesus face to face. And you will have to give an account of your life before him. And the only way to stand on that last day, the only way to make your death a temporary pause and a gateway to eternity is to stand and say, I'm with Jesus. On the words of a song that we'll sing in a moment, yet not I, but Christ in me. 
I trust Jesus. You don't need all the answers. You don't need to be perfect. You just need to come as you are, trust in Jesus, and let him do the rest. Amen.